waited all these months to give myself enough time to prepare for our next encounter. And at last, the goblin is ready. Happy New Year! This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things THE Amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, the mighty monologuing Motormouth Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. For the first time in 2022, this week, we're starting the year off by running through THE Amazing Spider-Man number 17, The Return of the Green Goblin. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers, where you gain access every week to a bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering a comic book pull from High Society's extensive vault chosen by you, the listeners. This week, we're covering Joker's Asylum 2, Harley Quinn. And if you want a story of a person being constantly underestimated to their enemy's peril, look no further. That's later. Right now, shout out to the home team. That's the right minders, the big three, the key keepers, and the high council. To you, for the first time this new year, I say I see you and I thank you for your support. And to you all, I say, hollow tips and talons, when it rains, it pours. As none other than Green Goblins back to thunderous applause. We've got Flash Thompson starting fan clubs. We've got Liz Allen starting beef. We've got Betty fighting Petty. But for Pete, there's no relief. We've got Spidey labeled coward, May in pain, and jaws uproared, and a guest appearance from none other than the Human Torch. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the Amazing Spider-Man number 17, The Return of the Green Goblin. Me and my friend Pete, old adventures, new critiques, me and my friend Pete. He spins webs, I spin your hearts, me and my friend Pete. Kinda kooky, before warned. The credits on this one, it was ruggedly written by Smiling Stan Lee. It was robustly drawn by Swingin' Steve Ditko. And it was recently lettered by Sparkling Sam Rosen. So another SNSNS production. The cover of this beauty sees THE Amazing Spider-Man in goldenrod yellow with Spidey Red beneath the word Spider-Man sitting on top of the webbing as usual. In gradients of blue that's changing from a dark blue to a twilight blue to a sky blue from the top of the page towards the bottom. At the bottom of the page, we've got a crowd reaction shot. One part's fear, one part's excitement featuring a who's who of Spidey's cast of characters. Stage right, we've got Betty Brant, her hair perfectly bobbed, dressed pink. She's looking up aghast. We've got J. Jonah Jameson. He's racing towards us, his eyes fixed on the side above him, his brown tie out of his green blazer, his gold cufflinks shining on his raised hands. Next to him, stage left, his back to us, we've got the Brandex kid himself. Flash, fashion on, eh, it's a nice blue sweater. Thompson, and he's staring up in shock. We've got Liz Allen's head behind him with her impersonation Betty Brandt hairstyle. Betty wears it best. And Liz is staring up, her mouth agape at the scene above her. Behind the amazing cast of characters, we have no less than eight teenagers staring up in wonder. What are they looking at? None other than THE Amazing Spider-Man in action. His left hand extended from the webbing beneath his logo box. 
He's swinging in from stage right in his classic red and blue, spraying a shot of webbing at the Green Goblin, who's flying in on his brand new Goblin Glider. No more crooner microphones for him. He's traded in his broomstick for a glider that now resembles a silver bat with its wings and down flap. To counter the web head shot of webbing, he's got his purple gloved left hand extended and he's spraying green sparks from his pointer finger at the web head. Neither of them make contact with each other despite their best efforts because none other than Sifu Hot Rod, Johnny the Human Torch Storm is flying in from stage left between the two, both arms raised with a small smile on his lips. My people, we've got the return of the Green Goblin, guest starring the Human Torch. Let's get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider on a goldenrod banner next to the title, The Return of the Green Goblin. Beneath it, we're in Forest Hills. We're in Midtown High. We're in chemistry class. And we've got everybody in the classroom. Stage right, we've got radio, minus his radio, and a blue Mr. Rogers sweater and tan pants. He's holding his right hand across his left cheek to whisper to a couple of classmates while Bruni, in a checkered black and orange blazer, looks on smiling. And he says, Look at old bookworm Parker. The way he's glued to that Kim book, you'd think he was reading the latest James Bond mystery. Commander James Bond of the most distinguished order of St. Michael and St. George, also of the Royal Naval Reserve, codenamed 007 for the British Secret Service, is probably the world's most famous fictional spy. He was created by novelist Sir Ian Fleming in 1953, and since then has become a mainstay in television, film, and video game lore. If you were a video game kid in the 90s, you know that the video game GoldenEye 007 revolutionized first-person shooters, and that odd job, crouched on a toilet, is a cheat code in multiplayer, and you should probably creep through the vents to cap the guy with a headshot. In film in particular, the Bond series has spanned six decades, with the first movie starring the legend Sean Connery as 007, Dr. No, debuting in 1962, and the latest film, number 25 in the series, No Time to Die, having been recently released here in the United States on October 8th of 2021 starring Daniel Craig in his final role as the rugged individualist. We can find Sir Fleming's most influential character's template on some of the most recognizable heroes in American fiction, despite being a product of the United Kingdom. From diehards John McClane to Action Jackson to Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's Amazing Spider-Man. The Bond film series is the fourth highest grossing movie series of all time globally. He's part of the reason I think you can dress to kill and wholly the reason I know you should never order a martini shaken not stirred. So if Pete's reading his Kim book like it's a Bond novel, that's an exciting chemistry book. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. Chemical Bond. Back to On stage left, we have a gang of children surrounding Flash, fashion on, eh, not that bad, Thompson, who's sitting at his desk in a green sweater with a horizontal black stripe running across his chest and tan slacks. He's looking over his shoulder with his right hand raised, his pointer finger beckoning his crew. We've got Auburn, Sandy, brown hair, and Liz Allen in a high-collared red blazer, all leaning in to hear what he has to say. And Flash tells the kids to see him after class because he's got some big news for everyone. And finally, dead center, we've got the Goldenrod Kid, his face on half man, half amazing, and a vest befitting his nickname with black trimming and a red sequin tie. He is styling on him. Pete has a book open on his desk in front of him, his right hand to his chin, and he does seem to be reading the chemistry book as if it's fascinating, but above Pete's head, we see what he's thinking, and his thoughts are high above the New Mexico desert and his battle as Spider-Man with the green and purple clad menace with the perpetual grin, Green Goblin. Spidey's falling headfirst towards the earth as the Green Goblin scoots by on his flying metal broomstick. That was ASM number 14, the grotesque adventure of the Green Goblin. Green Goblin's first appearance featuring Marvel's greatest gang, the Enforcers, and Marvel's greatest powerhouse, 
The Incredible Hulk. You can find that tale here on me and my friend Pete titled Just Deserts, back too. So Pete's mind is on the desert knockdown drag out and he wonders why the Green Goblin hasn't been seen since. And you know cosmic and comic timing are gonna take over to answer that question. We turn the page. In another part of the city, at the same time that Peter Parker sits in his science classroom, the very one he is thinking of is also thinking of him, or to put it more accurately, of Spider-Man. And the Green Goblin is suited and booted on his new glider in a white negative space. He's got his purple sleeping cap on over his green elf mask that never stops smiling with its ears sharper than Legolas's. He's got his purple sleeveless shirt and underwear with pink trim over his scaly green sleeves and leggings. He's got his pink gloves and pointy elf boots. And to complete the look, he's got his pink bag of tricks swinging from his strap draped diagonally over his shoulder. He is getting his work out in. He's spraying a shower of sparks from his left pointer finger at a life-size model of the Golden Liability, web wings and all. That's a hell of a model, held up by the strings from its head and shoulders. Goblin says the next time he and Spidey battle, he'll have a bunch of new weapons to defeat him with. He reaches into his bag between panels and screaming, Now, I'm only practicing with a dummy target, but I can't wait until I get a chance to use my little bag of tricks on the real Spider-Man. Hurls an explosive that causes the strings holding the dummy of Spider-Man to snap. It falls to the floor on its back in the next panel. Its left hand at its side, its left leg stretched over his left shoulder, its right arm and right leg bent. Goblin, racing forward on his new glider, complicated looking machinery in the background, says that with all his practicing, he should have no problem beating the real Spider-Man just as easily as he's beaten the dummy. But fighting a dummy's like fighting a board, and what's the rule about boards, Bruce? Boards don't hit back. Next, Goblin, gripping the handle on his glider with his left hand, punches at buttons behind the flat, bat-shaped head with his right. I really love the design of this glider. I mentioned it's shaped like a bat and has bat's wings, but judging from the different panels leading up to this one, the wings raise and lower, which as Goblin points out, makes him faster and more maneuverable. And now he can stand on the glider, making it easier for him to attack with his finger sparks and bag of tricks. And speaking of bag of tricks, he's dumped the contents of his pink traveler's bag onto a yellow tabletop and I'm starting to think Gobby is just a fan of Halloween whose plans for global conquest will just turn the world into a non-stop All Hallows Eve. There's a green toy frog, a gray bat resembling Gobby's glider, a smiling light blue crescent moon, and two smiling jack-o'-lanterns. In the next panel, Green Goblin's chains out of his outfit. The mask sits with vacant eyes in the foreground on the golden hook as the Goblin, now in a brown pinstripe suit, continues his monologue. He says he's prepared for months to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the webhead again, and now, the Goblin is ready, and walking into a pastel blue and pink final panel, placing a purple hat onto his head, his back to us, he says all he has to do now is find Spider-Man. A short time later, after class at Midtown High. Pete's in the foreground, stage right, placing his chemical bond book back onto the shelf as he looks over his shoulder at the crowd gathered around Flash Thompson. They're all excited to hear Flash's news, and Flash gets right to the point. He says he's starting a Spider-Man fan club, Forest Hills chapter, that he's the president, and he's inviting all the kids to join. One flunky says that naturally Flash will be president. Liz Allen says the idea sounds groovy, and a black-haired no-name on the edge of the crowd looks over his shoulder at Pete walking toward the group and says, Ixnay, here comes Puny Parker. Pete, sliding his jacket onto his shoulders, is greeted by Liz Allen as he approaches the group. She's fiery Liz Allen today in a very stylish high-collar blouse and pencil skirt with pearls wrapping her neck. And she asks if Pete's heard about the group Flash is joining. Pete says he hasn't. Flash, not bothering to turn around to face Pete and shooing him away with his left hand, says, Forget it, Liz. Parker wouldn't be interested. Don't let us keep you from where you're going, useless. Called him useless like JJ on the docks. And Pete takes it on the chin. 
Turning, he says, Don't worry, Flash. I can always think of something better to do than talk to you. And walks away from Flash and his flunky faction. But Liz isn't happy. Her hands on her hips, she leans in towards Flash and tells him that's the cruelest thing she's ever seen him do. Boy, is her memory short. Flash, quite literally, routinely shoved and pushed Pete around until Pete knocked him out. Flash insults the kid at every opportunity, verbally. Flash smacked Pete across the face at least three times we've seen. Flash broke Pete's glasses. Flash, believing Pete a weakling, was foaming at the mouth to fight him. Flash, even after getting knocked out twice by the Goldenrod Kid, still refuses to put respect on Pete's name. But I get it. Liz is counting Cootie from the moment she stopped cheering Flash's abuses on. Back to. She asks why won't Flash let the Goldenrod Kid join his reindeer games, and Flash actually makes a good point. He reminds Liz that Pete doesn't even like the webhead. And Flash would know. Pete's disrespect of Spider-Man in ASM number 5, that's the golden liability, always another day episode here on me and my friend Pete, led to Flash being kidnapped by the Latvian lion, Dr. Doom, himself. Flash continues saying Parker's not interested in anything that isn't strictly Dullsville. Population? The loneliest number. Flash says if Pete ever saw Spidey, he'd probably faint, as an auburn-haired member of the Flash flunky faction cosigns, telling Flash he said a mouthful. Flash turns to Bruni, smiling in the final panel, saying, Anyway, forget about Puny Parker. I've got big plans for my Spider-Man fan club. It's going to be the greatest fan club in town, because Spidey's the greatest guy in town. But whatever plans Flash has, Liz Allen has plans of her own. Her right hand to her chin in the foreground, she thinks she's going to find a way to get Pete into that club. A few minutes later, as Pete walks home. Pete walks down the street, turns a corner, and steps right into a crowd reaction shot. There's a guy in a tan hat, brown suit, purple tie, a guy with brown hair wearing a purple checkered blazer and a lime green tie, and a guy in a green blazer, blue tie, and yellow fedora, all white, all looking up, thunderstruck. Pete wonders what they're all staring at as purple blazer screams, look, they're running into a waiting helicopter, while yellow fedora says he never saw anything like it. Next panel, we see what the three men are staring at. We get one of Ditko's gorgeous whirlybirds, hovering above a rooftop as three men clad in purple costumes with yellow gloves, boots, capes, and cows, race towards a ladder descended from the helicopter. The tail guy, of course, is holding a cliched yellow money bag. Pete, from off panel, thinks whatever these guys are doing, it's no good. And in no time, he is in an alley, pulling his mask down with his right hand and boot up with his left. Racing towards the action, Spider-Man thinks, they got a real head start, but with a little luck, old Spider-Man ought to be able to catch them before they can get out of reach. Here goes nothing before leaping huh. from the alley above the crowd, flipping off the hood ha. of the yellow taxi and onto a delivery oh. truck thinking, Wee! Look, Ma! No hands! The astonishing arachnoman agilities across the avenue! He leaps from the delivery truck huh. onto an iron lamppost, scales up the sheer wall of a building, leaps from the wall, huh. loops a flagpole in a perfect straddle cut, that's for the gymnastics fans out there, and grabbing the bottom huh. of the sign drilled into the side of a building, shoots a web line with his right hand, before rocketing up and into the final panel towards the hovering whirlybird. Feet first, wondering aloud how blown Flash Thompson's mind would be if he knew who Spider-Man really was. But Flash knows who Spider-Man is, the best ever. On five, Pete gets to the chopper, grabbing the bottom rung of the ladder with his left hand. He says one good thing about being Spidey is it keeps a growing boy out in the fresh air and swings into the chopper to deal with the three purple and yellow clad villains who've been joined by a fourth. The villain closest to the door stage right screams, hey, what? Get him out of here. Spidey says, you want me out of here? After I went through all this trouble to pay you a visit? The costume villain stage left asks how Spidey got in the whirly bird. But Spidey, grabbing the man by the collar with his left, raises his right fist. I hate to seem anti-social, 
but I'll ask the questions. And the first one is, what made you think you could get away with a caper like this? The villain screams that Spidey's got it all wrong, that Spider-Man doesn't understand. But the villain doesn't understand. Spidey's about to pull a first play in the book of golden liabilities. Fist, swing him if you got him. And we got cut. Stop the cameras. The whole scene is ruined on account of that nut that Spider-Man says. That nuts. We're on the rooftop behind a director in a blue newsy cap, green shirt with long johns beneath it, and brown pants who's shaking his left fist in anger and grabbing his hat with his right hand in frustration. A cameraman is staring up at the whirly bird in the distance with his hands on his hips. He's frustrated. There's a best boy, electric. He's holding cables and he's looking back at the director saying Spidey probably didn't know this was a scene from a movie. And we know Spidey didn't because as soon as Spidey finds out, he web swings over to the roof to apologize. I'm sorry I spoiled your scene. Guess I was over eager. But the director doesn't want to hear it. Standing on the edge of the roof, shaking an angry fist at Spidey, he tells Spidey to stuff his sorries in a sack. He calls him a web-swinging lame brain, and he says they ought to keep the web head in a cage. Who gonna put him there? You? In the next panel, my friend Pete's back on the scene, ground level, as a group of onlookers discuss how Spidey screwed the pooch. A guy in a blue pork pie hat asks, Did you hear what happened to Spider-Man? A guy in a purple fedora replies, Some sensational superhero he is. I wonder how he finds his way home at night. Pete, tucking his tie back into his vest, thinks, Very funny! In the final panel, Pete's walking on one side of the street, stage right in the background, his hands in his pockets as usual, but he's looking across the street at a debutante woman with auburn hair, wearing a yellow pillbox hat, a brown blazer, and white debutante's gloves. Pointing angrily at the person she's talking to, she is shouting, If you ask me, that Spider-Man is getting too big for his britches. That's three exclamation points at the end. And Pete thinks, So asked her. He laments the fickleness of society, thinking no matter how many great things a fella does, one little mistake, and they never forget it. And as you'd expect, when Peter reaches the newspaper office of J. Jonah Jameson, he finds... And I haven't seen Jameson this happy since all of New York thought Spider-Man was on a crime spree in ASM number 13. That's the golden liability, the zingaroo shuffle here on me and my friend Pete. Jameson's wearing a collared shirt with buttons on his collar, a green tie, and purple slacks. The return of JJP's! Jameson is laughing with his head thrown back and his eyes closed as he screams, This is the best news I've heard in months! Spider-Man made a laughing stock of himself! Everyone's talking about his bonehead mistake! Behind Jameson, Betty Brant, the damsel, never in distress, has on a stylish red vest, black turtleneck, and lime green skirt. Her bob? Flawless. She's holding a folder in her left hand and looking over her shoulder at the goldenrod kid, who hands, still in his pockets, is standing near the door frowning. Betty asks Pete what's wrong. Pete says he may just have a headache, but I know Jameson yucking it up is grinding on his nerves. Next panel, Jameson, still smiling with glee from behind his desk, calls Pete his demon photographer and says he feels so good, he's even glad to see the kid. A demon isn't only hell spawn. It's a forceful, fierce, or skillful performer of a specified activity. One thing about JJ, even when he's insulting Pete, he still puts respect on a kid's name. He knows how his bread is buttered in the photography part of the Daily Bugle. Jameson tells Pete he's gonna publish his anti-Spider-Man editorial and then he'll be right with him. Pete, turning away from JJ Scowling, says he only came to walk Betty home. If look could kill, JJ'd explode, I'm sure. This scowl that Pete is wearing is intense. Walking down the street together, Betty, matching lime green clutch, she is style flaring. Says she wishes Jameson didn't hate Spider-Man and Peter's coming off really brash here. He replies, Really? What difference does it make to you, Betty? Pete hopes she's not beginning to suspect who Spidey really is. In the next panel, Betty lowers her head saying, Have you forgotten, Peter? 
Spider-Man saved my life three times in the past. And I'm starting to get the impression that Betty thinks Pete doesn't pay her nearly enough attention. She doesn't realize that Pete was there every time. While her head is down, Pete glancing forward gets worried right away. He's glad she doesn't suspect him of being Spider-Man, but he curses his luck because Pete doesn't have great luck, only great skill and greater responsibility. And neither one saves him in this moment. He grabs Betty by the shoulders in the next panel, stepping in front of her, and says he forgot to tell Jameson something, so they need to go back to the office. Someone shouts, Petey, from off panel, as Betty points out that someone's calling him. And of course, that someone is none other than Liz Allen, standing next to Flash Thompson in front of a newsstand, holding a newspaper. Liz waves Pete over, shouting that she has something to show him. And Flash is saying what Betty's thinking, I'm sure. Does that square have to pop up wherever we go? Pete, grimacing in a Homer Simpson, don't, expression, apologizes. Gosh, I'm sorry, Benny. I know how you feel about Liz. I hope we could get away before she saw us. Betty's not trying to hear it. She tells Petey to drop the act because she's not impressed one bit. Betty Brent, wholly unimpressed. In the final panel, Liz and Flash have made their way over to Pete and Betty, and Liz shows why she and Flash get along so well. She goes full-on jerk, stepping between Betty and Pete, her back to Betty. She says, mm, putting on some weight, aren't you, Miss Brent? Here, Petey, I want you to read this. The nerve. Betty, too dignified to respond, thinks that she hates when Liz calls her Miss Brent, that it makes her feel 100 years old. Meantime, Pete's thunderstruck with what he's reading on the paper. While Flash, his arm folded in the foreground, says, Big deal. Parker can read. Page 7 opens to a close-up of Pete reading the paper with shock on his face. Flash has put an ad in the paper for his fan club. Important notice. The first meeting of the Spider-Man fan club, Forest Hills Chapter, will be held at the Elegant Avenue Dinner Club. Spider-Man will appear in person. Betty may not be impressed, but Pete is. Liz, primping her hair in the next panel, says that her father owns the club and he paid for the ad in the paper because he's always been a fan of Spider-Man. And Betty thinks, that blonde boy stealer wants the world to know how rich she is. Pete asks Flash how he knows Spider-Man will show up and Flash's answer is simple. He says Spidey's not a crumb like some guys he knows. He beats his chest with a fist saying, he's the greatest guy in the world and he's all hard. He performed at a circus for charity last month. He won't let his loyal fans down. The dichotomy of a human being right here. Flash, fashion on trash, Thompson. Pete, smiling despite himself, thinks, How can I ever be mad at a fellow who feels that way about good old Spidey? Even though he hates Peter Parker. Flash goes on to say that of course Spidey will be there after seeing this notice in the paper. And Pete says, Something tells me you're right, fella. While Liz, standing behind Pete, her hands on his shoulders, tells Pete to be sure to come. Liz glances back at Betty, saying she knows Miss Brant can't come because her boss might not like it. And Betty makes it quite clear she does what she wants. Where I go on my own time is my business, Ms. Allen. In the next panel, as Flash from off panel says this is his fan club and he didn't invite Peter, Pete goes half and half immediately, looking around trying to pinpoint the danger. We get a great panel from curb level of different legs passing, gray slacks, brown wingtips, a green suit, and a brown pinstripe leg and dark brown loafers. The Green Goblin is walking past Pete right now, but Pete doesn't recognize anyone in the crowd. But why should Peter recognize the one dangerous man in the crowd? He's never seen him without his Green Goblin mask before. And Green Goblin, New York's man of mystery, is walking past a stylish woman with strawberry blonde hair, a red blazer, a red beret, and red shirt with white and black trim. There is no reason for this woman to be this stylish as an extra in this panel, but she's going up on the Patreon page. She's that stylish. Ditko, working, 
back two. Goblin is walking and reading the newspaper at the same time, and he's thinking that a meeting of Spider-Man's fan club is very interesting. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, Infinity page. page. Page eight. Just in time to witness Liz tell Flash that if Petey isn't invited to the meeting, she'll tell her father to shut the whole thing down. When Flash asks how she can do this to him, Liz says, very easily. So again, I'm not a fan of Liz Allen, but she constantly uses her status and the power she wields to bend her social circle to her way of thinking and doing things. Meanwhile, Pete continues to look like an inattentive boyfriend as Betty, disappointed with this whole situation, taps him on the shoulder and tells him she has to get home now. Pete says sure, but he's not even looking at her. His head is over his shoulder as he tries to figure out who just passed by. Pete finally gets his head out of his rear end and walks Betty home. But instead of being out of the woods with his girlfriend, he starts building a cabin at the heart of said woods. At the front of Betty's building, he drops her off, tells her goodnight, and says he'll be seeing her like they're just friends. While Betty wonders to herself why he didn't invite her to the dinner club to see Spider-Man with him. Pete turns to leave thinking, I can't ask Betty to come to the meeting with me because I've got to attend this Spider-Man. Hope she doesn't feel hurt. He's digging himself a hole. She feels way past hurt, Pete. Sheesh. Seconds later. Spidey is suited and booted on the sheer wall of a nearby building and he's thinking that he couldn't wait to change it to Spidey so he can find the person who set off his Spidey sense. But he has no luck. He searches for a few moments, but the person is nowhere to be found. Descending upside down on a web line, he spots a man in a brown suit and black hat with green band. This guy's got the bushiest mustache I've ever seen, and he's holding a cigar. The guy is glancing over his shoulder suspiciously, but Spidey thinks that he may just be getting jumpy and that everyone looks suspicious. Stalking the man into the next panel, still clinging to the wall, Spidey thinks, I can't afford to make any more blunders after spoiling that movie scene yesterday, before web swinging into an alley. He continues his inner monologue, thinking he might as well change back to Peter Parker because if there's a danger to him, he's going to find out about it sooner or later. But no sooner does the amazing teenager revert to his normal identity than... A gunshot cracks through the air and somebody screams for help. Then the police, then screams at a thief to stop. Pete, barely done fixing his tie, screams he'd better look into it. We turn the page and Pete was right. The man's bushy mustache was a fake and he's sprinting down the street, gun in hand, looking over his shoulder. Pete's frozen. He wonders if he should tackle the guy now or run back to the alley and change it to Spider-Man again. Before Pete can make a decision, a fireball hits the gun in the crook's right hand, melting it on impact. A second after that, the man is encircled in a ring of fire. He's confused. He screams, Whoa! and in the next panel, none other than the Long Island igniter himself, Sifu Hot Rod, the Human Torch, shoots onto the scene in a literal flyby as police officers catch up to the crook trapped in the fire ring. The police thank the torch as he says it's a good thing he was flying by. The torch lands between panels as the crook is cuffed and led away. A police officer says Johnny saved him a possible gunfight. An older man with balding gray hair wrings Johnny's hand, thoroughly impressed. That was a wonderful bit of marksmanship, son. You destroyed his gun without injuring his hand. You're a real hero. As a crowd begins to form around Johnny, Johnny gives a small wave to the police saying it's all in a day's work. While Pete looks on, hands on hips, salt just spilling from his pockets, thinking nobody makes that much of a fuss for Spider-Man. In the next panel, a strawberry blonde woman asks Johnny for his autograph. A middle-aged man in a purple suit asks for an autograph for his son. Another strawberry blonde says, right with love on mine. <sighs> Pete, jealousy all over his face, salt all over the sidewalk as he looks on thinks, maybe I just don't live right. I better shove off before he gets elected president. Before Pete can leave, however, the future president signs an autograph and hands it over his shoulder to Pete 
saying he noticed the Goldenrod Kid hanging around and knows he'd like an autograph as well. Johnny tells Pete not to thank him and compliments himself with a wink, saying, I'm just all hard. Pete, half man, half amazing, asks if he's supposed to sleep with the autograph under his pillow while thinking, Wow, Mount Shaw's! In the final panel, Pete, walking away from the crowd, notices a young boy running by. The kid's wearing an olive shirt, burgundy pants, and a pair of white and burgundy converses. He's white, of course. He's holding the human torch's autograph with both hands and shouting his excitement. Boy, this is my lucky day. Hey, did you get his autograph too? And Pete thinks he's going to have some fun with the boy. He replies, no, this is Spider-Man's. Would you like to swap? But the kid's not having it. He replies, what do you think I am? A nut? That's what he says. A nut. Pete smiles and keeps it pushing, thinking you can't win them all. But if you're keeping count, Pete's lost every one today so far, so he can't even win some right now. We turn the page and we're in J. Jonah Jameson's office the next day. He has his hand pressed against his desk, puffing a cigar, and he's staring at a copy of the Daily Bugle, and he is tirading as Betty looks on. He's saying he doesn't like the ad for the Spider-Man fan club being run in his paper. He doesn't like the message, but he took the money. He could just give them a refund and be done with it, but we all know he won't. The miserly paper magnate doesn't do refunds. Betty asks why doesn't Jameson want the ad in the paper, and JJ snaps. If the club's success, that web-spinning clown could become as popular as the Beatles. Tell Parker to be at that meeting with his camera. We'll join him there. I found some way to put a damper on that club. The Beatles are, of course, the Beatles. An English rock band formed in Liverpool in 1960, and they're regarded as the most influential band of all time. They've sold more than 600 million albums worldwide, a world record, have the most number one albums on the United Kingdom's album charts with 15, and the most number one hits on the Billboard Hot 100 chart with 20. They've earned seven Grammys, four Brit Awards, an Academy Award, and 15 Ivor Novello Awards presented yearly in London for songwriting and composing. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a group, and each original member has been inducted individually. They've twice topped Rolling Stone's Greatest Artists in History list and have been recognized by Time Magazine on its list of the 20th century's 100 most important people. To even begin to classify their style or influence on music would take a much different podcast and a lot more time. Suffice to say, when it comes to music, George, Paul, Ringo, John, and Pete, Stewart, Chaz, Norman, Tommy, and Jimmy didn't just leave their fingerprints on the game, they left colossus-sized statues like Ozymandias. But if you look upon their work, despair is probably the last feeling it garners. Back to JJ, pounding his hand on his desk, tells Betty to go call Parker right now. Betty says yes sir, but thinks that the last thing she wants is for Pete to be at the fan club meeting where Liz can shoot a shot at him again, so she's going to wait to call Pete when she's sure he's left. Oh, the days before cell phones. While JJ's plotting on Spider-Man, Pete's at home with Aunt May. May's wearing a brown dress today, so salt of the earth May, with matching shoes, and she's placing a vase filled with pink flowers onto a table, while Pete stands behind her with his arms wide. They're having a very familiar conversation. May is telling Pete that she has good news. She's arranged a date tonight between Pete and Mary Jane Watson. And Pete reminds her that he's never even seen Mary Jane and that he doesn't want to go on a blind date. May replies, Nonsense, dear. I know what's best for you. She's a very sweet girl. Mrs. Watson says so. And Pete, raising a finger with his eyes wide and a smile on his lips, has an idea. He says he can't go out on a date with Mary Jane tonight because he has to go to a meeting of the Spider-Man fan club. But the joke's on Pete because May tells him that Mary Jane 
loves Spider-Man. May says she herself doesn't see Spidey's appeal, but knowing Pete's out of excuses, says they're all set. Pete runs a hand across his face exasperated, thinking that this is awful because he can't go with Spider-Man if he's stuck with a blind date when the phone rings. May picks up in the next panel and we hear that Mary Jane can't meet Pete tonight because she's caught a bad cold. May says Pete will be so disappointed. And Pete hams it up immediately. Throwing his right hand over his heart, the left to his forehead, he thinks, Phew, I'm saved. Then says, That's right, I'm all broken up about it, Aunt May. Get this kid an Oscar. But he's played the role of the scorned blind date too well. May, fiddling the phone in the next panel, stares at him and says, What's that? If Peter is so disappointed, she might try dressing warm and taking some pills? Pete drops the whole act. He shakes his head and hands violently saying it's too dangerous, that Mary Jane could get the flu or worse, and he wouldn't think of having her go through that for him. The curve in the time before COVID. In the final panel, Pete's act holds and May says, isn't that sweet of Peter, Mrs. Watson? He's so concerned about dear Mary Jane. Pete's already grabbed his SJB blazer and bent a corner towards the front door screaming, that's right. I'm worried sick. Well, I've got to go now. See you later. Bye. This is a beautiful page from start to finish. The facial expressions from joy to pain. Awesome. Ditko working. And he was just getting warmed up. Eleven opens to a large stage in front of a yellow background glittering with stars. Purple curtains draping the background on both sides. There are dinner tables with wicker chairs and candles surrounding the stage. It's giving a very Copacabana feel. Very copacetic in front of the stage. Liz Allen and Flash Thompson are standing, talking with Liz's father. They're thanking Mr. Allen for letting them use his club, and he says it's his pleasure. The next panel, we see he's a brown-haired man with high cheekbones. He's wearing a gray suit and red tie with a white pocket square. And we know he's a money talker. He says, besides, I'm not completely unselfish. If there's a big turnout, it'll be good publicity for my club. And that means a big boost in business later. The fans should start arriving soon. Do you think Spider-Man will really show up in person? And Flash says they hope so because Spidey's sure to have seen the ad in the paper. And a short time later. The club's filled to capacity. Bowtie approaches Flash wearing a SJB blazer and red bow tie. He compliments Flash on a turnout and asks where Spider-Man is. Flash replies, I don't know. Just keep your fingers crossed, Charlie. So now we know Bowtie's name is Charlie. Liz in the foreground, hands to chin, wonders where Petey is after she went to all this trouble. Petey's nowhere to be found, but the golden liability is on a nearby rooftop in the next panel. His right arm braced on his raised right knee, his left hand on his hip as he stares down at the club. And you know he's monologuing, giving the game away. This is my big chance. If I make a good impression in there, maybe people will stop distrusting me and start liking me the way they like the torch. I feel like a nervous actor on opening night. But Spider-Man's not the only one monologuing. And Spidey might still be more nervous if he could see the strange figure across town who is silently speeding towards the same destination. And we see the gate-crashing Green Goblin swooping in on his glider, and he's giving the game away. Won't Spider-Man be surprised to see the Green Goblin among his many fans? And in the final panel, we get a packed house. Johnny Storm is in the building with his girlfriend Dory. He's in a tan suit and red tie. Dory is wearing a green scarf wrapping her brown hair and a matching green dress. She's pointing at Johnny, telling him to remember his promise, that he's here to see Spider-Man, not compete with him. And Johnny says he'll remember the promise. He replies, don't worry, Dory. The only flame tonight will be the one in my heart burning for you. Smooth with it. 
But Dory's not having it. She jabs a finger in his direction and tells him he can't sweet talk his way out of the promise. We've got people already seated, all smiles and excited murmuring. J. Jonah Jameson is in the building at the center of the panel in his JJP suit, and he's looking left and right, wondering aloud to Betty, who's in a goldenrod blazer and skirt. Why isn't Parker here, Miss Brant? Didn't you give him my message? Betty says she tried to call Peter, but he wasn't in. She's glaring at Liz, thinking she's glad Peter isn't here because the blonde bandit is watching for him like a hawk. And Liz, the blonde bandit, is returning the death stare at Betty while a kid named Seymour stands between she and Flash asking what will happen if Spidey doesn't show up. Flash, hands on hips, tells the gray-suited kid to bite his tongue because Spidey will be here. And if there's one thing Flash Thompson does know, it's Spider-Man. The sign of the spider lights up the starry yellow wall of the states to open page 12 before Spidey swings in on a web line causing the crowd to erupt in cheers. Someone from off panel shouts, there he is! And Flash, jumping up with his left fist raised, losing all composure, shouts, yay! So loud that Sam had to go ham and put it in red font inside of a yellow screen box. Jameson, standing stage left, is shocked by the eruption from the kids, but he doesn't get it. The children of Forest Hills, specifically the students of Midtown High, have seen Spidey risk life and limb for them in particular more than once. The webhead did battle with the Sandman and the living brain through the walls of their high school, putting himself between the people and the danger. If there were ever a wrong place for Jameson to come thinking he could spread hate on the golden liability, this is it. And Spidey shouts, greetings web spinners, here's your own friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. As the crowd goes wild, but from a darkened corner backstage, an electrically charged toy frog is propelled towards Spidey's swinging web. And a pink gloved hand tosses that green frog as Gobby shouts from off panel, At last, my moment has come! The frog hits Spidey's web line in the next panel, snapping it easily, and Spidey plummets to the floor, wondering what could have done it. While below, we've got a crowd reaction shot. A red-haired kid screams, What happened? A blondie girl covers her eyes because she can't bear to look. A brown-haired kid, Fear in his eyes screams the obvious. Spidey's web snapped. He's fallen. While a balding man who must be a super fan screams that this hasn't happened to Spidey before. He's right. That's not the point. How does he know? How do you? Touche. Back to Spidey. Agility on. Best ever. Flips twice in the air and lands in the next panel on a perfect bow. Thinking a minor accident won't stop him. And he's right. One teen asks if we saw how Spidey flipped into a safe landing while another shouts, What a stunt! More! More! In the final panel, Flash has calmed down. He is now golf clapping, happier than he's ever been. And he says, See, I knew he'd show up. What a great guy. Yay, Spidey! 17-year-old football star and he's yayed twice on one page. I think it's adorable. I get it. Meanwhile, Liz, standing beside him, could care less about Spider-Man. She's the only person not staring at the stage. Her head towards the door, she's thinking the whole evening is a flop because Petey isn't in the room. And in the foreground, Johnny and Dory are the only two people who aren't smiling. Dory's telling Johnny she doesn't like the look in his eye as Johnny, his eyebrows furrowed, thinks that Spidey played it off well, but that wasn't an act. Someone tried to hurt the webhead. And Sifu Hot Rod couldn't be more right. The Green Goblin soars in front of Spider-Man standing on the stage to open page 13. Rows of tables behind them, every person believing this is a part of the show, Goblin screams, Now, Spider-Man, we'll really give them a show. As Spidey thinks, Holy smoke, the Green Goblin. Now I'm in for it. Goblin brags that he's got a bunch of new surprises in his bag of tricks and a dramatic prose from atop his glider. 
swooping down to ram into Spider-Man, who backflips to give himself a little huh. distance, thinking he has to make this look like an act so the people don't panic and they rush for the door. There are more than 200 people in this room right now, so Spidey's making the right call, I think. I'm not sure I really wouldn't know how to get these people out safely without causing a panic in this moment. But that's irrelevant. Spidey's already made a decision, and the goblin doesn't care either way. He gets right to business, saying his first new trick is the way his goblin sparks activate as soon as he touches a button on his belt. But that's a downgrade, because the last time he faced off against Spidey, he was shooting sparks without having to press anything. I'm starting to think Green Goblin is not insane. He fires a blast of Goblin sparks at Spidey, calling them pretty, and they are. They're golden, before asking Spider-Man if he'd like a closer look. Spidey, spraying web lines towards the ceiling from both shooters as the Goblin sparks rocket towards him, thinks, they look pretty all right, pretty dangerous. I'd better swing out of the way. He backflipped from the floor just huh. as the sparks hit the front of the stage where he was standing, and the crowd is going wild. Yay, what an act. More! Give us more! There is always somebody in a Spidey crowd screaming for more. I think this is the one person. We're gonna call this person the more guy. He was at the circus. He's here at the fan club. He follows Spidey around. As Spidey thinks that they don't suspect that any of this is real. Spidey spins between his web lines like a two-string yo-yo in the next panel, thinking he can't keep this up and that he has to find some way to beat the goblin without getting the audience involved. In the final panel, Jameson is upset. Bah! The fans are eating this up! If only I could dream up some way to spoil this corny show of his! But Jameson's the only one. The crowd loves it and Betty is all smiles as she thinks that she's so glad Peter didn't show up and maybe he doesn't like Liz as much as she thought he did. Page 14 opens the Goblin's pink gloved hand in a goldenrod space, tossing his next weapon from his bag of tricks as he tells Spidey that he's done well, but Goblin's got a lot more surprises before hurling an electrically activated mechanical bat. The bat flies around Spidey, shrouding the stage in thick black smoke. But that's nothing. Spidey can hold his breath for four minutes, and Spidey doesn't need to see to know the hits keep on coming. His Spidey sense goes off behind the black curtain of smoke as we get the Green Goblin's most famous weapon used for the first time. Goblin has hurled a pumpkin at the cloud of smoke he's created. Spidey tucks, huh. rolls, out of the smoke, just as the pumpkin reaches it, exploding on impact. The first use of a Green Goblin pumpkin bomb. ASM number 17, history being made right now. The next panel, Flash Thompson's got his hand on the shoulder of a kid grinning from ear to ear in a light blue blazer and purple shirt. He's asking if the kid's convinced now. He says he told the kid Spidey was the greatest. Meanwhile, in the foreground, Dory tells Johnny they're watching a thrilling act but she immediately asks Johnny what's wrong when she turns to look at him. Johnny says if his hunch is right, a lot, because what they're watching is no act. Meanwhile, Spidey's hopped out of his role and leapt up towards the Green Goblin. Both arms outstretched, he lunges towards the Green Goblin, hoping to tackle the villain from his glider. But Goblin wasn't kidding when he said his glider is more maneuverable. He bends his knees, and the glider shoots him towards the ceiling as he screams. I expected that. How does it feel to find a foe who's as fast as you? Spidey, shooting past him with his arms outstretched, thinks it's a rotten feeling, but he's not gonna tell Gobby that. He hits the floor on a handstand huh. between panels, bounces off his left foot, ha. and into a backflip. Oh. Goblin taunts Spidey, saying Spider-Man would save a ton of energy if he had a glider. Spider-Man, never one to go without a reply, says, Where'd you get it, Gobby? Your Uncle Hurt's rental glider? Hurt's rental glider! Let Hurt's put you in a glider seat. Spidey is inches away from Liz and Flash, upside down to open page 15. Flash cheers Spidey on, telling him he's doing great, and the act is amazing. While Liz, 
still searching for Pete says, I wonder why Peter Parker is never around when Spider-Man appears. I've never seen them at the same time. And Spidey panics thinking Liz is getting suspicious. Making me sus, 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 suspicious, huh? You're making me think a lot, eh? Smart guy. But Liz is over the idea in the very next panel, thinking the club is crowded wall to wall and that Peter could be here and she just hasn't seen him. Spidey, still dangling upside down on the web line, inches from her thinks, I gotta think of something to keep her from getting too close to the truth. But what? But Spidey's got problems in the now. Flipping right side up, he races towards the Green Goblin thinking he's got to put the Goblin out of action. Goblin's thinking the same. Speeding towards Spider-Man with a pumpkin in his right hand cocked back, he tells Spidey not to move because he wants to remember Spider-Man the way he is. Goblin hurls the pumpkin bomb and it explodes into a shower of Goblin sparks, snapping the web line in Spidey's left hand. But Spidey's unworried. He shoots a line with his right, screaming. You're okay as a big bad villain, but you never make it with the Dodgers, pal. I don't know, Spidey. That was a pretty accurate toss of the pumpkin bomb if you ask me, but nobody asked me. Goblin's getting frustrated though, and he's letting the pumpkin bombs fly now, saying that he can't keep missing all the time. But Spidey says, what I'm sure we're all thinking. That's what they all say, until I lure the boom. In the final panel, having lured Goblin just where he wants him, Spidey pulls himself towards the ceiling, thinking that he's finally got the Green Goblin in position, and he needs to move fast. But at that very moment, the sharp-eyed Johnny Storm notices the dangerous glint of three gun barrels in the balcony above. And Johnny stands from the table telling Dory to sit tight for a few minutes. Dory grabs Johnny's arm reminding him that he promised he wouldn't get in on the act and says if you don't sit down right now. But Johnny is more than a promise. Johnny's great power. You already know the rest. Meanwhile, that glint of gun barrels? Well, Johnny's got 2010 vision because he was looking at the skylight where none other than the Berber gang are standing in shadow watching Spider-Man battle the Green Goblin, all three of them with pistols in their hands. You know if the Berber gang's around, there's a safe to be cracked somewhere and Jesse Pink with his baseball cap brim for Skyward wants to find it. Sneaky Pete, remembering every time Spidey's put hands and feet on him says, I'd like to finish off that crummy Spider-Man face. As if he could, Badger doesn't say anything. He's probably already assuming Spidey's going to be sending him back to the pen. Suddenly, a dramatic cry rings out as a flaming flying figure blazes upward. You see that alliteration? Stan is working right now. And you heard the caption box. Johnny shouted, flame on, and gets in on the action. He says Dory's going to be pissed, but he's got to do this. And a torchy's gotta do what a torchy's gotta do. Meanwhile, Spidey's got the Green Goblin dead to rights, in sights, upside down, on a line with his right, web shooter. He sprays a line of webbing at the Goblin, but cosmic and dramatic timing have the torch flying towards the skylight, getting between Spidey and the danger on the way to more danger. The torch screams, can't wait, webhead. Goblin thinks, that was a close one. He almost had me. And Spidey thinks the torch has spoiled everything. And Flash Thompson, super fanboy that he is, is not happy about Johnny's gate crashing. He stands, and after wondering aloud who invited the human matchstick, cups his hands around his mouth, screaming, Get lost, Torch! This is a private party! While a kid in a blue turtleneck tells him to clam up and screams at the Torch to, Give it to him, yo, fighter! And does the Torch give it to him? Next panel, we're outside of the skylight as no less than three fireballs are hurled through it causing the Berbers to scatter. Jesse screams that they've been spotted and breaks north along the ledge with Sneaky Pete on his tail screaming, this does it, I'm taking the pledge, I'm going straight. Pete's screaming it, but Badger's breaking south away from them. So I'm convinced 
He's the one who's done living on the wrong side of the law. In the final panel, we get a gorgeous panel of the goblin and torch towards the detailed ceiling of the dinner club. Goblin, pissed that the torch has just interfered in his fight, turns his attention towards Sifu Hot Rod, who flies up to meet Gobby fearlessly at the same time, wondering where Spider-Man has disappeared to. For the answer to the torch's unspoken question, let's turn our attention to a youth who breathlessly races towards the audience. And Pete is disheveled. No tie, shirt untucked, hair tousled. The kid hasn't even changed his Spidey boots. He's playing his game too fast and too loose right now. Racing forward, adjusting the collar to his SJB blazer, he's thinking, so far so good. Now to put in a brief appearance as Peter Parker. Pete makes a beeline right for Liz Allen saying he thought he saw her from across the room. And she calls him Petey, of course, and says she's so glad he showed. Flash is pissed off. Looking over his shoulder at the two, he screams, First the pesky torch, and now Puny Parker. This place is filling up with a bunch of deadheads. But Liz ignores him. She tells Pete that she's sure she can get Flash to let him join the Spider-Man fan club. And Flash tells Liz to come on, that if they accept Pete, they'll have to accept anybody. And I don't like the way he says anybody. Flash is giving out some bad vibes right now. Don't like how that sounded. Back to. And Pete says bump that noise. He's going to start his own fan club for the Green Goblin. Liz smiles and runs her hand through Pete's hair saying his sense of humor is so cute. She asks how Pete's hair got so must and he says it's pretty windy on the other side of the room. Flash saying Pete's as funny as a secondhand crutch. Translation, he ain't funny at all. Waves a hand at both of the teams flirting and walks away from them. You salty flashy boy, I know it. But of course, Pete looks across the room and goes pale. Just as Jameson makes eye contact with him from near a tiger-striped pillar. What? Look, blame Mr. Allen. I ain't the interior designer. Jameson, of course, points Parker out to Betty and wonders aloud why his demon photographer didn't bring his camera. Betty goes hand to chin immediately, watching Liz run her hand through Peter's hair. Liz says Pete looks pale, and Pete thinks that's the understatement of the year. And speaking of pale, while Pete's love life is unraveling on ground level, Goblin's going back into his pink bag and pulled out a small ghost-shaped trick. Thinking he's got to get rid of the torch quick so he can focus on Spider-Man, he hurls the ghost at the human torch. The ghost may seem harmless, but it envelopes the torch in the next panel, creating a vacuum seal as it does. And Torch knows science. His brother-in-law is the world's most sciencey human after all, so Torch has absorbed a thing or two, namely that fire runs on oxygen and if his flame is smothered, he'll be out of commission. Torch considers burning to Nova intensity, but knows he could seriously injure someone's solar flaring in a confined space, so he doesn't. In the final panel, he knows he's gotta think of something quick because Goblins just tossed another ghost at him and he's running out of oxygen. Back on the ground, Pete races towards the exit so he can get back in the mix. Past the Tiger Strike pillar, Betty is leaning against in tears. This is the second issue in a row Pete's swashbuckling has made Betty cry. She wipes her tears with a handkerchief, wondering how Peter could do this to her. Because he can't see the forest for the trees, Betty. The kid can't see the forest for the trees. Just then, the battle-wise torch gets an idea. His idea? He doesn't go supernova on his body in full, but focuses the heat in his right hand. And we get a gorgeous panel of the torch's hand lit up like a light bulb as he channels the power of the sun in the palm of his hand. His idea works and the ghostly film around him evaporates. Torch shoots towards a fleeing green goblin in the next panel, a quick cued up on his lips, but before he can get it out, he runs into thick black exhaust smoke from Goblin's glider, while Goblin, laughing to himself, shouts over his shoulder at Johnny that the smoke makes the most effective.
Preventative against pursuit. Goblin busts the Yui on his glider in the next panel and tosses a stunning pumpkin bomb at the torch, who has just enough flame to land safely, thinking to himself that Green Goblin's won the first round. And then, among the odd spectators, a chilling, startling realization begins to take root. And we've got a crowd reaction shot as the Midtown High students sitting, standing, gripping each other's arms. All of them look up in shock. Give play by play. Wow, the torch just saved himself in time. Maybe I'm nuts, but I'm telling you, this is no act. Nuts. You're right, I've been thinking the same thing. You mean, this is for real? In the final panel, Spidey's back on the scene. He flips over the Green Goblin, gripping a web line in his huh. left hand, screaming. Did you miss me, Gobby? Goblin sparks fly from Gobby's left pointer finger as he replies, not as much as the world will soon miss you. But he's gotta be quicker than that, because Spidey's already behind him, webbing the back of the villain's ladder. Frustrated, the Green Goblin shouts for Spidey not to move so fast. But why would he listen to you? On page 19, Spidey puts his acrobatics to work. He swings beneath the Goblin's glider and using the momentum, shoots up huh. beneath the Goblin eye to eye, replying to the Goblin saying he has to move fast because he doesn't want the Goblin to get bored and fall asleep. But Gobby won't be outdone. He bends his knees and the glider drops straight down in a gorgeous panel, his bag flying up because gravity, as he shoots to the plane beneath Spidey. He shouts, ah, but the Green Goblin can move fast too. You didn't expect my glider to make such a sudden drop, did you? And Spidey says a lot of good that'll do you. And he's right. Goblin throws an uppercut that Spidey dodges easily huh. with a backflip, landing beautifully in the ha. next panel. Spidey thinks, I've got him on the run now. I'll swing up again and put him away for keeps. So Spidey is almost there. But in the background, a wall phone rings and the Mater D answers. Hello? What? Yes, I think Peter Parker is here. Why? Spidey hears his government name and turns his attention to the club manager who continues his conversation. His aunt suffered another heart attack? Asking for him in the hospital? I see. I'll see if I can find him. And that's the ball game for the young Spider-Man. On Spidey's list of responsibilities, May Parker is number one with a bullet. Thinking the torch can handle the goblin, Spider-Man bolts toward the door, knowing he can't waste one second. And the crowd is shocked. Look, Spider-Man's running away. I can't believe it. He must have turned yellow. Twenty opens to a long horizontal and the crowd has gone from shocked to outraged. A blonde boy in a green blazer calls Spidey some hero. A sandy boy in an SJB blazer says the green goblin must have been too much for him. Bruni boos Spider-Man. Literally, boo Spider-Man. That's what she says. The human torch, still high above the ground, wonders why Spidey's ducked out, but he knows he's got to deal with the goblin, so he's not wasting any time thinking about it. As J. Jonah Jameson's whole attitude has changed. Smiling whiter than the Grand Canyon with a clenched fist, he says, This is better than I dared hope for. I can just see tomorrow's headlines. Spider-Man turns chicken. Green Goblins watch Spider-Man duck out as well, and thinking that he has no reason to fight the torch, and digging into his bag of tricks, pulls out something to hold Torch off until he can escape. But the Green Goblin said in his first appearance that his goal is world domination. If that's still the case, and knowing Gobby, it is, he's gonna have to go through the Fantastic Four eventually. His best interest is to knock off the Human Torch now. But Goblin, for all his smarts, for all the tricks in his bag, and he is in his bag, to be sure, he's just another villain hustling backwards. Back to Johnny wonders what Goblin's up to, but he doesn't have to wonder long as Gobby tosses a pumpkin bomb at him in the next panel. But that's nothing to a fireball hurler, and Johnny tosses one at the bomb, forcing it to explode in a shower of sparks. 
exactly what Green Goblin wanted. Spots dancing in front of his eyes in the next panel. The torch is blinded. And knowing Goblin is making a brick for the skylight, hurls no less than three fireballs at the gliding Goblin getting away. Covered by his trail of black smoke, Goblin shoots through the skylight, fireballs flying all around him as he screams. I did it! I managed to reach the outside before his vision could return. My battle was a complete success. And next time I fight Spider-Man, I'll leave him no avenue of retreat. It will be the finish. He's escaped a second time despite a two-on-one with two of the world's greatest heroes. Goblin isn't what we're used to. Spidey's greatest villain at this moment in time is the one-man hands team, Dr. Octopus, and he's only managed to get away once. But at that moment, the Green Goblin is the last thing on Spidey's mind. Spidey is changing again as he runs along the ledge of a building. He's remembered his shoes this time. He's got his pants on, his belt undone. He's pulling his collar shirt over his Spidey costume and has his blazer gripped in his hand and he is hauling tail. And as the crowd thins out at the Avenue Dinner Club, we get Dory and Johnny and she's telling him that she isn't upset with him anymore. In fact, she's proud of him for leaping into action. But Johnny, now in his Fantastic Four gear, he's burned away his blazer and pants after all, says thank you, but he can't figure out why Spidey left the way he did. And Dory knows her boo, she says, underneath that silly old feud of yours, you really like Spider-Man, don't you, Johnny? And Johnny says, yeah, or at least he did anyway, before Spidey turned tail and ran. Meanwhile, Betty's still hiding behind the tiger-striped pillar, drying her eyes as JJ dashes past, putting his brown hat onto his head, grinning at her. He shouts, Miss Brent, call the paper. Tell them I'm on my way over. We're putting out an extra. I'll tell the whole world what a coward Spider-Man really turned out to be. Betty says, yes, Mr. Jameson. And Damsel, never in distress that she is, she thinks, and I feel like telling the whole world what a fool I am for thinking Peter Parker ever cared about me. I, I'll never trust him ever again. Pete's not in hot water. Baby, the floor is lava. The next panel, Liz wonders where Pete got off to, commenting that he must be part ghost as Flash tries to get the crowd all heading towards the door to stay. Hey, wait up, fellas. Don't go yet. We have to vote for officers for our Spider-Man fan club. But nobody's trying to join a coward's club. One kid goes so far as to say, Spider-Man can go jump in a lake. He must have been absent when Spidey took on the Sandman and playing hooky when Spidey stopped the living brain. But he's not the only one who feels this way. Flash, shouting at their backs, asks if they're all just fair weather friends. Only there when there are good times. He screams that Spidey had to have had a reason. When the kids don't stop, Flash says, who needs you? That he's staying because he's no deserter, that Spidey will always have one true fan. A brown-haired boy leading the pack towards the door replies, Nuts! What's the angle, Flash? Is he a relative of yours? And Flash, shooing them all away, screams, No, he's not a relative. He's just the greatest guy in the world. And you'll all admit it someday. Just wait and see. Damn it, Flash, if you aren't right. Meanwhile, Pete, pulling his mask from his face, leaps between building rooftops, screaming he only has a little further to go. He swings onto the street below, screaming, I don't care who sees me, I've got to reach on me. But the street's deserted, so no worries. 22 opens to us above the city as a doctor tells Peter that May is very sick, but now that Peter's in the building, she has more reason to live. On the other side of town, someone screams, Stop the presses. Mr. Jameson is putting out a Spider-Man expose extra. We get a gorgeous panel of a horrible moment as Pete sits on a bench, his left arm bent over his knee, his face covered in his right hand. He's hunched over and he is going through it. Poor Aunt May. All she ever wanted was the best for me. And I never spent enough time with her or trying to do enough for her. And I don't believe that, Pete. You've done a lot for Aunt May and she knows you have. She loves you, kid. 
Don't beat yourself up so bad. These are the vicissitudes of life. This you can't control. But a doctor comes out of his surgery scrubs with good news. He tells Pete the crisis is over and Pete can see May now. Pete races into the room and takes her hand in the next panel as the doctor looks on. And May's in bad shape. She has just enough strength to utter, Peter, dear, dear Peter. And Pete replies, don't talk Aunt May. You've got to rest. Gain your strength back. Don't worry about anything. Just get well. You've got to get well. As the doctor looks on from the door, Marvel doctors never give anyone a moment's privacy. Pete stays until visiting hours are over and on the street outside, walking with his head down, he overhears a group of people reading the latest Daily Bugle headline fresh off the back of a delivery truck. One guy in a blue pork pie hat says that the Bugle's calling Spider-Man a coward right there on page one. Another guy in a brown fedora says his kid was at the dinner club and Spider-Man ran off like a scared rabbit. And finally, a sandy-haired man in a tan suit says, Sure, he's probably nothing but a phony. It shows what a big publicity buildup will do for a guy. As Pete crossing the street thinks he's become public heel number one overnight. He reaches his bedroom and pulling his Spider-Man shirt over his head in front of his mirror, he is monologuing something fierce. Benny is hurt because she thinks I went to the club with Liz instead of her. Everyone thinks I'm yellow, and I've probably lost any fans I might have had. On top of all that, the Green Goblin is free again, and may strike again at any time. He throws the shirt against his wall in the next panel in frustration, and continues. And the one person who's been kinder to me than anyone else in my whole life is in the hospital now, and there's nothing I can do to help her. A lot of good it does me to be Spider-Man. Sometimes, I wish I had never heard that name. In the final panel, his head down, hands to forehead, his spidey mask and shirt stage right, his shadow looming large in the light from his window behind him, Pete finishes his monologue. Why don't things ever seem to turn out right for me? Why do I seem to hurt people, no matter how I try not to? Is this the price I must always pay for being Spider-Man? Beneath this dramatic scene, we get a caption box. And so we take our leave of the world's most human, most misunderstood superhero. But if you think his life is complicated now, just wait till you see the hand that a capricious fate deals him next issue. We promise you a tale you will not soon forget. The end. And we're out. Hollow tips and talons when it rains, it pours, and life is such a bowl of cherries, I am sure. I have to admit it was tough for me. I really do enjoy Spidey taking his lumps. I think it builds character, but this one seemed to really just beat down on him and there weren't very many wins to be found. Even in gaining the Torch's admittance that he liked Spider-Man, Spidey didn't get to keep it because the Torch lost all of that camaraderie and good feeling, thinking that Spidey is yellow. So it was a rough read for me, it was a tough go, but you gotta take your lumps, and it's not all sunshine and rainbows. If you're a comic book superhero, your life is gonna be upended a lot more times than not. If not, we wouldn't be reading. So Spidey's gonna bounce back because Spidey takes his L's and he always bounces back. And I'm excited to see exactly how he does. And that's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on patreon.com slash hspp. Patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through Joker's Asylum 2, Harley Quinn. And if you thought Harley was dangerous with the Joker at her side, imagine what she's like when she's trying to get to him. We've got a wild Valentine's Day tale in this bonus issue, and I would love for you to run through it with me. Join me. Head over to patreon.com hspp and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council Tears now to learn the story of Harley Quinn, 
getting to her boo on Valentine's Day. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a special thanks to the home team, the right minders, the big three, the key keepers, and the high council. This podcast is completely listener supported and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care, and please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, you know you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.